There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir. They have the car stopped at 10th and Grinch Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. Guys, we've been covering the Brian Koberger or the Idaho quadruple case, and I hate to refer to it as that, the uh, case of Ethan Chapin, uh, Zaina Canodal, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gonzalez. We've been covering this since the very beginning. A lot of happenings right now inside the courtroom. Uh, relative to discovery. And something really big happened today, of course. And uh, what that was is that the prosecution has decided to go for the death penalty. Uh, The prosecutors in Idaho said they plan to seek the death penalty against a man accused of murdering four University of Idaho students in, in a home near campus last fall. Bill Thompson, the top prosecutor in Latah County, wrote in a court filing on Monday that the nature of the November killings, the stabbings that occurred in the middle of the night and went unsolved for several weeks, met the standard for the kind of aggravating factors that warrant seeking the death penalty. Among them, the suspect, Brian Koberger, is charged with committing multiple murders. The killings were especially heinous, atrocious, and cruel, and Mr. Koberger had exhibited utter disregard for human life. As we know, Mr. Cobra was 28 years old at the time of the killings, and he was studying for a PhD in criminology at neighboring Washington State University. He said early on in this case, of course, this is is according to the New York Times, that he expects to be exonerated in this case. Um, At a hearing last month, we all know he declined to enter a plea, and the judge, Judge John Judge, entered a plea of not guilty for him. Uh, this is the first murder in Idaho in seven years, and it happens that it's a multiple, multiple murder. So there's, there's of course, many, many issues. And some of the issues that we're looking at now also is the relatively new technology of investigative genetic genealogy. And it, when I say relatively new, because it's not, I don't even know right now if there is legal procedures written for law enforcement to follow. If they're not, they're probably in the process of doing so. In 1997, uh, I think the first DNA hit that identified a serial killer in upper Manhattan, actually in Spanish Harlem, a serial killer and rapist named Aaron Key, that was the first DNA hit in New York State history. The first serial killer who was identified through DNA. Now DNA, of course, we talk about CODIS, which stands for the Combined DNA Index System, which is compiled and collected by the FBI. And they are the arbiters of that, and they keep the CODIS system. However, to be in the CODIS system, you must have been convicted of certain felonies and and a, a few misdemeanors. So a first-timer, obviously, is not going to be in that database. So in this instance, of course, um, Brian Koberger, 
was not in the CODIS database. So what other way to identify a perpetrator of a crime like this other than through DNA? And in this case, investigative genetic genealogy, which is, of course, again, a relatively new technology. Because of that relatively new technology, the defense wants, of course, all discovery in regards to how the FBI that swabbed the in, a buckle swab, it's called, that's the inside of your cheek, they'll swab the buckle with a Q-tip and put it in a paper envelope, seal it, and that is the DNA exemplar. And that's the DNA exemplar that they took off of Brian Koberger. And that was used to be to match to the sheath, to the touch DNA that was left on the sheath. And it was, as we all know, it's mathematically, it's almost exactly him. There's, there's not even not enough people in the world, uh, the whole entire population, that it could match other than Brian Koberger. So I think from a statistical point of view, people are happy with that. However, the defense wants to poke holes in that. How was this evidence collected? Did the did law enforcement have probable cause at the time of this buckle cheek swab? Because what they're doing now is they're going to challenge the grand jury minutes, right? And they're going to see whether or not they, in fact, had probable cause at this point. I mean, they're, they're challenging everything right now, uh, as a, a good defense team should be doing. They have to be doing their job. But another thing, we opened up the this episode with talking about how the prosecution is going for the death penalty. There's many ramifications to that. One of the things that every defense attorney will mention is that law enforcement gets a much better or more law enforcement friendly jury when they go for the death penalty. However, there are other hurdles for law enforcement that they have to clear that make it also a little more difficult. And we're going to talk about that tonight, as well as the hearing today. We're going to touch upon the gag order. And with me tonight, I didn't want to do this all by myself, so I brought in two buddies with me tonight. And we have straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. How you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. How you doing? Pretty good, and welcome to the show. we got a lot to talk about tonight. But first, I'm going to bring in the man of reason, <laughs> Professor... Father Mike. Father Mike, Professor, law degree, retired NYPD sergeant, Professor Mike Geary. Mike, welcome hey. to the show. Hey, guys. Good to see you. What's good up, evening. Mike? All right. You know, Mike, one of the things that uh, we're learning about today, of course, is, you know, they, they had these. I, I want to play something right away because this, this news station explains this perhaps better in, in a more abbreviated fashion than going to the entire hearing, which we may watch a little bit of later. But let, let's play this and then we're going to comment on what they have to say about this. Adjourned as Brian Koberger was back in a late county courtroom where a judge heard arguments from his defense and the prosecution over multiple issues. Koberger is the man accused of murdering four University of Idaho students in a home just off campus in November of last year. And just yesterday, the prosecution filed their intent to seek the death penalty if a jury finds Koberger guilty. And that's not the only issue that got brought up today. News Channel 7's Morgan Romero was in court in Moscow this afternoon. Morgan, what can you tell us about what happened in court? 
You know, guys, court today was a lot quicker than expected. If you were tuning in last night to the news at 10 and today on the news at noon, we said that we expected today's hearing to last several hours because there were four things that they were supposed to discuss. Motions to compel, the first motion, the second motion, and the third motion to compel, as well as motions to release the grand jury records and transcripts of those proceedings, as well as a protective order over all of those records. And then the last thing was going to be a motion to stay or pause proceedings, but they only took up one issue rather than those four issues on the calendar. They took up the two first motions to compel. On that third issue, the state said it wanted more time to respond, and today, just filed in the Cases of Interest database, the judge granted that order. That third motion has to do with the defense wanting information on genetic genealogy that was done that led the FBI to build a family tree leading to Coburger. So on all those other things that were not taken up, I'm told attorneys are working together on those issues. Again, to reiterate, that's the motion to pause proceedings and the release of grand jury materials. A court spokesman says that is not necessarily unusual and there may not be any hearings in the future about those things if they work it out behind closed doors and can resolve those. So on those motions to compel discovery, that first motion, the defense is asking for records of training related to officers who did several witness interviews. The state says that is not material to the investigation. They don't believe that they're going to call those officers to testify during trial and they say it's out of the scope of Idaho rules to provide that information, those training records on those Idaho State Police officers and their background. But the defense says it is pertinent. These were interviews and interrogations that were done with witnesses that then led them to certain evidence and led them to, of course, their defendant, Brian Koberger. That second motion to compel discovery has to do with investigative reports and conclusions from all cell phone analysis done by the FBI cast team. So the defense is asking for all records and reports related to information that was used in the probable cause affidavit that led them led them to arrest Brian Koberger and has also been used in several search warrants. Along with that ask, they're also asking for reports, communications and documentation from the FBI forensic examiner who changed the year of the white Hyundai Elantra that law enforcement was originally looking for and changed it to the year that Brian Koberger's white Hyundai Elantra, they say, was made. So few things are still working out. They say the prosecution isn't hiding these things from them other than the training records. They say the stuff from the FBI, they don't believe the prosecution's hiding it from them. They think that the prosecution is waiting on it just as they are. So they're trying to compel the uh, federal government to give them those documents. So the judge said today in an order, we are going to give the federal government by July 14th to provide these records to both the prosecution and the defense. The defense saying that all of this information is really pertinent to them providing a fair defense for their defendant, for Brian Koberger, as well as uh, now that the, the fact that the death penalty is on the table, it makes it even more critical and relevant at this time. Again, that hearing today not lasting as long as we expected. They didn't take up all the motions that, that were on this court calendar. Uh, and we don't know if they will take those up in a public forum or if they'll continue to work on those behind closed doors. Back yeah, to you guys. Yeah, I was going to ask, because of the shortness of today's proceedings, Morgan, if they had set maybe another date or something for uh, a, a time to take up these other issues. No, they've not. The only date that the judge gave today was that July 14th to compel the federal government, both the FBI cast team and the FBI forensic examiner that looked at the Hyundai Elantra to give the documents that the defense is asking for. And again, they don't think the prosecution is hiding those from them. Uh, they just want to really, um, you know, compel the federal government to provide those and put a deadline on them because it is it is bureaucracy that they're dealing with here. All right.
Mike, I'm going to address you first with some okay. of these questions because they uh, take up the, the the legal the legal part of this. First of all, the FBI is in charge in this case is in charge of the investigative genealogical uh, DNA. Now, the defense wants to know how did they arrive at Brian Koberger? How did they build this genetic family tree? that arrived with his, his, him being matched to the DNA on the sheath. Well, Billy, um, when you look at the chronology of everything, you know, they, uh, they, as they were doing their investigation after November 30th, after the, uh, the homicides, they were uh, going through cell, they were going through um, first, they were looking at cameras, they, you know, ring cameras, they were looking at, uh, uh, cameras and security and security cameras from different areas. And they started to realize that there was a, a white, what looked like possibly some late model Hyundai. And so they started there. Um, they knew there was some sort of DNA on the sheath, uh, remember to touch DNA, but they had nobody to trace it back to. But uh, as they developed more and more evidence, they were, uh, they started interviewing people and they started getting cell phone data and then they started to realize that the person in the Hyundai Elantra may be uh, a really good bet as a suspect. And so at the point that, and so they had all of this information that they were building up technical information. They had the DNA. They didn't have a match. They had the uh, video information, the security camera pictures. So they really had pretty much a, a good, real, a real good um, beat on who their prime suspect was. And then they, then they realized that the white there was a white Hyundai Elantra by owned by Brian Koberger, who was in Washington state, just a few miles away. They started to follow him. They followed him across country. We they had the, the, the famous Indiana uh, trip there. They go across uh, country to Pennsylvania. They watch, they get a piece of uh, DNA off of a napkin or something. And then they realize very quickly that the, that the donor of that DNA was a biological relative, like the father of the person whose touch DNA is on the uh, knife sheath back in Idaho. And that's when they moved in. They said, we got, we already have enough, but this is the icing on the cake as far as probable cause. And they arrested him. Then they end up doing a, a cheek swab and then it matches to like one millionth of a quadrillionth uh, percentage, it being a total 100% match. And uh, so they arrived there. Now that's all done by the uh, through the uh, the uh, FBI and the lab in Idaho, and then another lab I think was in Texas. And that we got to remember, the FBI has a lot of these records, and they have their agents, and they they've been working with these um, uh, laboratories. But the technology is 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 new to criminal investigation, but the genealogical DNA. Uh, mapping of the family tree that has been around for a while. It's been used in cold cases. It's been used uh, by uh, 23. Oh, Mike, Mike, let me just, Mike, no. let me interrupt you for one second. But is there law enforcement criteria? Is there criminal procedure law written guidelines in the collection of investigative genetic genealogy? Is there guidelines on how to build this family tree? that law enforcement must follow. Is that written anywhere? No, probably the the, the genetic genealogy uh, formulas that they use to figure out, okay, who's related to who, uh, you know, ancestry-wise, 
is written by the people who developed the technology who were not originally FBI agents. So Mike, now, it's not it's not written by the criminal procedure. Let me just stop no, you for a second, no. Mike. We're gonna get we're gonna come back to this. I just want to yeah. go to Phil for a second. Yeah. Phil, two of the areas yes, that sir. two of the areas that they're attacking now. One is the white Honda. Mm. Because remember mm. in the beginning they gave a, a little it was about this wide. It was a 2011 to a 2016. Now the defense is saying, oh, once the FBI found out, in fact, it was a 2015, all of a sudden they said, oh, it's a 2015. That is a slippery slope, potentially, if, in fact, they they testified to that. And they didn't know that. at the. I mean, they knew it once they got his car. But when they were trying, as an investigative tool, using the video they had to identify that car, they had a, you know, which is okay. They had a scope between 2011 and the 2016. So part two of this, Phil, training records of officers. How pertinent is that? Should, is that something that the prosecution should give up? Is that something that the defense should be digging into? Well, first off about the car, Billy, obviously uh, the video that you saw uh, wasn't very clear. So like you said, they gave a scope. They gave a parameter of 2011, I believe it was, to 2016, or maybe 2013. I forget what it was. But it didn't hit the exact number of the year that Brian Kohlberger possessed. So again, we said uh, they gave a scope. They gave a little parameter. So uh, they weren't exact on it. They gave it the old college try, as you say. And they came out with a, a range of years. It was a little bit out of the range based on the fact that Brian Corber's car, I believe, was a 2015. So, again, I don't think it's that big of a deal, but they're going to go after anything they can. I, I think that the defense has shown their strategy a little bit today. You brought up the second part of a uh, second question. The three officers from the Idaho State Police that they want the training records for. Now, I would think that more uh, pertinent would be uh, if there was any disciplinary action uh, taken against officers for previously, let's say, uh, you know, uh, being held in contempt of court or something to do with testifying. But I think what they're doing is, and I'm reading between the lines a little bit, they picked three officers and they called them critical witnesses. These officers may have taken a witness statement or perhaps recovered a piece of evidence. Uh, they're going to be very important to the trial, it seems like. So therefore, you know what? Let's see if these officers have the proper training to recover evidence, to do interview and interrogation, to properly safeguard evidence, chain of custody, things of that nature. So I, I believe that the prosecution, their reply was, we don't think it's pertinent. The judge said he was going to reserve decision. He was going to give a written decision. He was going to look for some case law. In my opinion, I don't think the training of the offices is also pertinent. They're state police offices. If they uh, were brand new on the job, perhaps that could be an issue. But I think that these sounds like veteran officers. And, you know, uh, Bill, when you when you were in the uh, police force and the NYPD, uh, we went to training periodically. But the, there's something that's even better than training. It's on-the-job training. It's dealing with inter interview interrogation. It's going to crime scenes, reading the crime scenes. It's getting the... Um, you know, the experience of older uh, police officers, detectives, uh, when you go into, uh, let's say, the homicide squad, uh, you have the, the uh, you know, you have the other officers that have been there and their experience will, you know, then be taught to you. So, again, I don't think it's relevant. We'll see how the judge rules on that. 
But again, I think uh, they're trying to attack. They're going to attack the DNA evidence. That's clear. All right, let, let's move on to attack. the. Let's Go move ahead. on to the DNA. Let's let's play this, and then Mike, I'll get back to you on questioning about the DNA. A legal battle over evidence playing out between Brian Koberger working to clear his name in the murder of four University of Idaho students and the state fighting to prove his guilt. In new court documents, Koberger's attorney accusing the state of hiding its entire case by seeking to protect information about the genetic genealogy investigation they say led them to Koberger. The state here is using a relatively new kind of DNA technology. So this is exactly the kind of thing the defense will argue that they need, because if this is emerging technology, they need all the facts they can if they're going to challenge it. In a court filing earlier this month, prosecutors said that Koberger's DNA is a statistical match to DNA found on the knife sheath at the scene of the murders last November. In the filing, Koberger's lawyer said that two additional males' DNA was found within the house, as well as another unknown male's DNA on a glove found outside the house, days after the murder. Koberger's attorney also writing that police were investigating many various possible suspects, adding that many of them provided DNA and at least one had his DNA surreptitiously taken from a discarded cigarette. The judge entered a not guilty plea for Koberger after he opted to stand silent at his arraignment. He's accused of murdering Madison Mogan, Kaylee Gonzalez, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin as they slept in an off-campus home in Moscow, Idaho on November 13th. An expansive gag order has blanketed the case since January, challenged by both the media and one of the victim's family's lawyers. On Friday, the judge upheld the gag order but narrowed it, allowing attorneys in the case to comment on matters like scheduling and correcting misinformation about their client. Tomorrow, both sides will face off in court again. As Koberger's lawyers argue for the release of materials, they say they need to defend the suspected killer. Koberger's lawyer also went even further in the court filing, saying, quote, there is no connection between Mr. Koberger and the victims. There is no explanation for the total lack of DNA evidence from the victims in Mr. Koberger's apartment, home, office, or vehicle. Savannah. All right, Aaron, thank you. I want to turn now to NBC's senior legal correspondent, Laura Jarrett. Laura, good morning to you. I mean, th these are just pretrial motions going back. I don't think we need to listen to her. All right. Some of the things now, I just want to challenge myself here. Everyone's saying there's no other DNA on the knife sheath. How do we know that? We don't we know don't. that. But every broadcast station is saying there's no other DNA. They don't know that. First of all, and I, I say, I'm saying this ad nauseum, the autopsies, the results of the autopsies have never been revealed yet. Potentially, there is DNA evidence in the autopsies. The, the uh, police have never released anything about only the DNA that they, you know, they had on the knife sheath. They, they've never released anything else. So how did they know based on the discovery of the returned warrants? Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, Billy, it would be strange if, you know, a, a pro a processing that crime scene that they didn't come up with DNA from other unknown people. Of course, there's going to be DNA from unknown people because many of the people who were in that house over the course of a semester, you know, from, say, August through uh, November 30th, were college kids who've never been probably arrested before, never been convicted of a sex crime, never probably entered 
their uh, DNA in a 23andMe, you know, match database. So, you know, the defense would love to have the public believe that, oh, my goodness, there's other unknown male and female DNA in the house. And that's got to be logically right, Phil. They're saying it's got to be the the killer. And the truth is, it's just people who's like you do this with fingerprints. You've done this many times with fingerprints at homicide scenes and other crime scenes. There's fingerprints from people who lived in the house or people who stopped by the house to say hello the day before. Fingerprints will last a long time if they're not exposed to light and, and moisture. So that's kind of just, just stuff that a defense attorney saying, and they're doing their job trying to make their client look innocent. And I don't think anybody should, could, should, should be fooled by that whatsoever. Well, Mike, that's a good point because I'm sure that um, your house is not a crime scene. Phil's house is Phil's house is not a crime scene. My house is not a crime scene. Yet there's probably DNA of other people in my sure. house that have been to my house. So what does that prove? And right. the question of a glove that was pointed out in the crime scene ten days after the crime, unknown DNA. And that glove could belong to uh, someone from the press, another student, someone that dropped it. That that doesn't mm-hmm. mean. It's obviously, but what they, that was great for them because now they could say, this could be the killer, you know, exactly. and that's what, why they're using that to create doubt. So that found glove on the property is definitely not helping the pro- prosecution. No, no, the, not at all. Billy, that glove is found outside of the crime scene. So again, is it possible that the murderer dropped the glove? Of course it's possible, but I don't think it's relevant to what we're talking about with regard to this case. Now, the defense, again, they're showing their cards. They know that Brian Kohlberg is 100%. His DNA is on that night sheet. We've already established that. So what are they going to do? They're going to bring up these other pieces of DNA that were found. When crime scene investigators are doing their thing, of course, there was many, many people that were present in that house. It was a frat house. There were numerous parties there. So I think if they bring that up in court at the trial, the the prosecutor can clearly bring on a, a crime scene investigator and say, based on the fact that there's been many people, would it be unlikely that you would find more than one person's DNA in that house? And I think the answer is going to be, of course you would. So I think that'll answer that part of it out. But again, they know that the DNA is on the night sheet. That's probably one of the strongest pieces of evidence that has been revealed so far. So we're going to attack collection of that DNA. What lab did it go through? Was there any uh, chain of evidence custody uh, that was broken? And again, we're going to talk, I'm going to use a legal term, Mike, fruits of the poisonous tree. So if something is not done right, that evidence gets put to the side and, and the jury will never be able to hear that. So again, that's the things that they're trying to do. They're revealing their hand right now by these things. I'm reading between the lines a little bit, but they're going to go after you know, this glove that was found outside with some unknown DNA that was found a week or 10 days after, you know, the, the homicide was revealed. So, again, a lot of different things. And I think that a good prosecution team is going to be able to handle and answer out all of these things the way I just said. Yeah, of course, there's going to be other DNA found in the apartment. And uh, I think it's going to be uh, the jury's going to be able to read that. They're going to be able to understand that once it's explained. Mike, one of the things also uh, that the defense is it's a little confusing to me because earlier in the week they they were said we're ready to go to trial let's do it then all of a sudden they said whoa let's slow down we're not ready so what is it do they want to go forward or do they need much more time to prepare you can't have both you can't be 50 percent pregnant right now they they need more time they need more time 
they always say, I, I, you know, when's the last time you ever saw a criminal defendant ever say, I'll, I, I don't want to go to court. They always say, I can't wait to go to court because I want to exonerate myself. I want, you know, that's, that's a standard line. So they, they say, you know, I, we got to get this moving. On the other hand, they want it to go slow. Uh, the time always benefits the defendant. It never benefits the prosecution. The, you know, the because the prosecution has already got so much evidence and they're just now turning it over in discovery to the defense. So the defense wants to take it slow. And they remember, they, they already passed their deadline for the uh, alibi defense. So he has not yet mentioned that whether or not that they're going to present an alibi defense. And what the defense says about that is we haven't gotten all the evidence yet to know whether or not we're going to present an alibi defense, which is stall tactic, Mike. Stall exactly, tactic. Exactly. Exactly. So no, they they don't want this to go fast. They would love to push this out as long as they possibly can. One hundred percent. Let me play a little bit more of this about the DNA. So again, they're saying multiple DNA from other people are found on the scene. And uh, it's going to be used as a, a, as a defense. Uh, I'm not going to play this whole thing. I just wanted yeah. you to. What Billy, I think they were saying two, two male DNA were found inside the home and a third male DNA was found on that glove. So they're talking about three people. That's what, uh, what I read when I did my, uh, my little uh, research on the case today. Right, exactly. But what again, they're trying to uh, create doubt as then yes. how do we know? Well, you know, the other thing is, and look, we we obviously believe that they have the right guy uh, again. And for the, all the folks who are Brian Koberger fans and think, think that he's not guilty, um, you have that right. And he has he actually, you know, is innocent to proven guilty. And I'll state that. But I believe he's guilty. All right. So I'm not going to present this as someone that thinks he's innocent. I don't think he's I innocent. second that motion. You know? So I think there's tons of evidence that we haven't even seen yet. So I'll, you folks in the chat that get mad at us and think that we're biased. No, we just have worked homicide cases before, and we know the system, and we know how strong the evidence is in this case. And how do you get – I just want to – you know, I know there's going to come up some defense of how that sheath got there in the bed next to Madison Mogan and that, you know, someone planted it there with his DNA on it. That's been tried before in other trials. And that's what I have no doubt that the defense in this case is going to say that it was planted. But then how did Brian Koberger's DNA get on it? That's another thing. Yeah, the police put that there, too. So all of these things are got, we've seen before. We saw all, you know, there was there was some poor police work in the O.J. Simpson case. Let's face it. There really was. There was some, the processing of evidence uh, really left them open to all kinds of bias charges, leaving evidence in the back of the trunk of a car for days before bringing it to a lab. Yeah, all of that stuff left them open to, you know, allegations of corruption and allegations of incompetence. And that's why there are rules of evidence. And, you know, the chain of custody, Mike, is so important and how you invoice this evidence and how you test the evidence and how you get it right to a lab. 
You don't let it sit in a property room for days, you know, especially blood evidence, which breaks down if you don't get it right to a lab. So all of these things have, you know, have a price to pay for law enforcement. And let's hope that they did everything correctly in this case. And the judge set July 14th as the date that he wants the FBI to turn over that investigative genetic genealogical. Good luck, judge. Congress can't get the FBI to turn over evidence. I don't know if you're going to be able to. It's a good, it's, you know, it's a good start. It, but it probably won't be July 14th. No, but you know, the, the, the actual process by which the DNA is analyzed, the results are given to the FBI and it, you know, that's great, but the processing was developed and all the scientific, uh, you know, procedures, uh, have all been developed by private companies. And so they are, and the FBI works with them. They don't, you know, 23 million, all these other places, that's where they were, they're able to build uh, a family tree. And that's- Oh, Mike, can I, Mike, can I just stop you for one second? Yeah. 23 and me and I believe ancestry.com does not allow oh, police okay. Okay, to do don't. their to use their database. So they must use much smaller DNA databases right. to build these trees. And just mm -hmm. imagine how efficient it would be if a law enforcement, if say the FBI started a genetic genealogical uh database years ago, because the right. biggest the biggest companies are 23andMe. And Ancestry.com, and they do not allow law enforcement to use their databases. So they're working off of off a much smaller database of DNA, and they're still able to produce these results. Right. These results are fantastic because, so remember, we've talked about this before. So long as this, the science is reliable, and we know it's reliable because this is how people look up, I've done it myself, look up ancestors and where my great, great, great grandparents came from. We can do this very easily. It's not like, you know, it's not like we're splitting the atom in 1939, you know, right before World War II in the University of Chicago. And it's the first time, it's the only time we have to, to do this. And we don't know if the whole world is going to blow up. No, this has been, been it's relatively new, as you say, uh, 30 years since we've really gotten these convictions in the United States. But the technology has been booming in the last 30 years and especially after 9-11 and so therefore it's been handed been used in in hundreds and hundreds and thousands of cases and we know it's accurate uh, and so anyone who doesn't who doesn't who doubts the ancestry you know genealogical databases submit yeah like i did submit your dna to two separate companies and see how close they match and they match up like this it's amazing. So we know it's good. We know it's reliable. That's the most important thing. And but you know this in Idaho, they pro this might be the first time that the this defense attorney is facing this kind of genetic genealogical evidence. They might have done some other DNA evidence, but this is the first time with the with the genetic genealogical evidence that the uh, FBI got. So therefore, uh, for them, it's all new. And I don't blame them for doing what they're doing. I would do it too. They're going to nitpick any possible irregularity or any or anything they can. They're doing their job. You know, God bless them. They're they're doing what they're uh, ethically obliged to do, and that's vigorously defend. You know, Brian Kohlberger. And if we were on the defense team, we'd be doing the same thing. Mike, one hundred percent. And I'm I'm not saying that. I'm saying, yeah. of course. He's getting. He's going to have due process, mm -hmm. and he's innocent to proven guilty. I just happen to believe he's guilty, and I, I and I, I'm a ex-cop, 
and I've watched this case, <laughs> and I'm going to give my opinion. We yeah. we advertise that this is law enforcement, real crime, true crime from a police perspective. Right. That's what you're getting here. Sorry, I'm not going to quote the ACLU. Guys, i got to go to a quick commercial. Folks, this is police off the cuff, real crime stories. And like I just said, if you like real crime, true crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. And if you want to support us, we have a Patreon with two different levels. We also have a YouTube channel membership with five different levels. And you see the folks in the uh, in the chat with the green font. They're part of our YouTube uh, subscribers and our friends, family, and they've been following police off the cuff real crime stories you know i don't th- i don't have to apologize for my opinion in this case and i won't and there's a lot of people out there who maybe who believe brian Kohlberg is innocent i'm not one of them all right bill, bill you're not going to be on the jury i can almost guarantee that uh, no, no i can guarantee that too jury. you know and, and i want to point that something else bill that NBC reporter used a, used a canonism. She said surreptitiously about Uh-oh. the DNA recovered from the cigarette butt. I think uh, they may owe you a few bucks on that. She used your canonism. But, Bill, one other thing. I saw a story in the Post today about how the defense team, however, has pointed out that there's no DNA evidence tied to any of the four victims in the suspect's home, office, or vehicles. Now, what they're saying is, is that DNA from the victims didn't wind up in the suspect's home, vehicle or office so i don't know that 100 to be true since all of the evidence hasn't been turned over but they're putting that out there so in other words what what i think they're trying to get is yeah his dna was found inside the crime scene but if it was such a bloody bloody crime scene how come they didn't find any of the dna of the victims in his home office or vehicle so that's one of the points of contention that i think they're going to attack during the trial like i said they're showing their cards here with these uh little innuendos that they're putting out there in little statements. Look, as I said before, I don't believe that the uh, that the defense has all of the discovery. Obviously, they don't because they're uh, filing motions to get it. To get so it, exactly. there's a lot more evidence, I believe, that the prosecution has that they haven't put out there. Again, I point to the autopsies. The results of the autopsies have never been released yet. That I mean the evidentiary evidence that they collected during these autopsies have never been released. They did release, of course, cause and manner of death, but that was no surprise to anyone. But they didn't release the evidence collected during the autopsies. Mike? Yeah, Billy, you know, the defense attorney, they're they're doing the best they can. And at this point right now, as Phil, you know, rightly pointed out, since they haven't gotten all the evidence, we can't say conclusively that no no blood or uh, DNA evidence from the f- four victims has, you know, was in his car or on his clothing or in his uh, apartment or anything like that in Washington, because until everything is turned over, we can't conclusively say that if it is true for, and it's actually it ends up being true. It doesn't mean that Brian Koberg is innocent. It means that he was, right. he got lucky that the, the evidence didn't end up there. Or and it also goes to the idea that he was wearing some sort of coveralls or some sort of, you know, that sort of thing. Or he cleaned his car, Mike, remember? Or he cleaned, he cleaned his, his car. car. Right. He probably cleaned it several times. Right. Or, you know, and you put a put a plastic bag over the driver's seat, you know, so that when he sat down, you know, that sort of thing. So, and we don't even know. It might turn out that there is a report that says, yes, DNA was found. But at this point, I'll, I'll say that the defense attorney is telling the truth as of right now. There is no evidence 
that uh, of, of DNA from the victims in his car or in his office. I'll take that at face value right now. But I don't think that you could then conclude by make a conclusion that he's innocent. And this is just a total frame up by the police. I, I don't think so. You'd have to erase all the other things we know right. to get to that conclusion based on those three things. And there's, uh, you know, we know of about 10 different things already that are tying Brian to this homicide. So the fact that let's, we'll give them that. There's, right. there's uh, those three locations. There's no uh, DNA evidence of the victims found in them. That's okay because uh, we have all of the other things, all of the circumstantial evidence. And if you look at the way that this case was put together, it was done with circumstantial evidence piece by piece. And once they got to the DNA and the genetic genealogy, they went and recovered the uh, DNA from the garbage. Now they were on to the right person. And eventually once he was arrested, that swab cheek, the cheek swab that Billy was talking about earlier, that tied him to that knife sheet. And we don't know what other evidence there is. And trust me, there's going to be tons of it. You know, the, the other thing is, is that everyone gets, uh, and, and we've mentioned this a million times, I'm going to mention it another million times, is that everyone is going to talk a lot more about this as we get closer to the trial, and that's M-O-T-I-V-E, motive. motive. Everyone wants to know the motive, but guess what? It's not a necessary component of convicting someone for murder. But does the jury want to hear it? Yeah, they do probably want to hear it. Is the prosecution going to give their theories of what the motive is? Absolutely. Is the defense going to take apart whatever motive the prosecution throws forward? Look, I cannot wait. Uh, maybe that's not a good term, but during this trial, the defense and the prosecution are going to pay for the highest paid experts in the field. And if we talk about investigative genetic genealogy, the number one expert in the country is C.C. Moore. Has the prosecution already contacted her? I bet you they have. Who's the defense contacted? Who's number two? They're going to have, you know, but they also have to get someone to say what they want them to say. You know, if you can get two experts that see scientific evidence two different ways, because science is not supposed to lie. Science is supposed to tell the truth. But the interpretation of evidence sometimes, you'll see two experts 360 degrees apart. And you're like, how is that possible? Yeah, Listen, so uh, this in the Murdoch uh, case, too, you know? I'm sorry, Phil, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Mike. Go ahead, finish. In the Murdoch case, there was one example towards the end of the trial where the defense brought an expert witness who said, uh, in his in his expert opinion, there had to be two, two killers uh, for, for in the Murdoch case because two different firearms were used. It's like, Baloney. And that's it. So, and that's a nice conclusion, and I'm sure it costs a lot of money for him to get up there and say that, but he drew the conclusion only because there was two separate uh, uh, firearms used. Okay, that doesn't mean that he's 100% right. It's so, it's, it's a conclusion he made, and the defense, I'm sorry, the prosecution uh, and the jury kind of said, nah, we don't think so. They, but, they didn't you know, buy it. They didn't buy yeah, it. they didn't buy it. Uh, Mike, you know, with, with regard to the DNA now, uh, Bill just pointed out that it's a science, and I think the science is like almost exact. They say it's like you know three billion percent chance that it's that person. Okay, now the law of averages, the science science sometimes depends on the law of averages. Now, but what I think is going to happen with these experts is it's going they're going to point to how it was collected, how it was tested, where it was tested, where it was kept, 
how it was kept, all of those things, because if they can find a kink in the armor right. and they say, well, this wasn't collected correctly, so therefore that piece of evidence needs to be thrown out, that's what I think they're going for here. Because again, DNA evidence is like, it's like a fingerprint. It's very, very exact. And I think that there's not going to be any question about that. It's going to be Brian Kohlberger's DNA on that knife sheet and any other DNA that may have been collected from the crime scene, crime scenes. So again, uh, I think the experts will probably be able to talk about uh, the the amount of uh, uh, possibility that it's that person, but then they're going to probably talk about the collection of evidence, the storage of evidence, mm -hmm. and how it was tested, where it was tested. Right. Well, you know, I just want to, I just, you know, Mike, I just want to comment on this comment from the chat. Roberts May Queen Bill, the genealogists follow standards that have been set forth by their governing bodies. Robert, I'm so glad you brought that up. That's fine. But law enforcement hasn't done it themselves. And law enforcement and lawyers are very suspicious that anything is that's not drawn up by the legal profession. So, Roberts McQueen, you may be 100% correct that genealogists follow standards. So do state labs. And sometimes state labs totally screw up. There are standards set forward by their state, by their governing boards. But uh, Roberts McQueen, thank you so much for that. It's a great comment. And as I said, if law enforcement didn't write their own standards, lawyers are going to rip it to shreds. Yeah, Billy, you know, they got handling protocols like we always did. If you vouchered a car, you vouchered a wallet, you vouchered a firearm. I was just going to say that. Right? <laughs> Think of all the silly things that you had to go through, Every, you know, doing this, doing that. And it was it was a process that was repeated constantly until everybody was on the same page. And it, we and you always talk about chain of evidence. You know, you do it, you you put it in the locker, you bring it to the to the uh, property clerk's office, you sign it in, you sign it out, do all that other stuff. And the protocols are in place to ensure that they, it's handed handled minimally by only the most necessary people, and that it's it's treated properly. In this kind of case, that's what you're worried about. Uh, it was is the is the DNA degraded in any way? Um, was the proper was a proper properly trained scientist, you know, handling it? No one else. Uh, so yeah, the, the 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 defense attorney is going to attack all that, and that's that's their right. But um, you know, this isn't the first time in America. This isn't 1995, and it's the first time we're going to get a uh, try to get a conviction on DNA evidence. No. No, you, you know, you know, Mike, with regard to evidence you just talked about, uh, I don't think the public or the subscribers or people that are watching the podcast really understand what we go through. Like we mark a piece of evidence. Mm -hmm. Let's say it's a gun. We'll uh, scratch our initials into it or, or a shield number. Mm -hmm. And then you have to seal the envelope. You sign across the seal. Once it's open, the new envelope gets put into place, like you said. And then with jewelry, we have the lead seals. There's a lot yes. of different things that take place with regard to evidence to preserve it so that it's beyond a reasonable doubt when it's presented in court. And and all of those things, I am sure, being followed in this case. And again, like you said, but the defense attorneys, they'll look for the kink in the armor. Perhaps there is some type of uh, thing that wasn't done properly, the protocol wasn't taken, and that's where they'll try to uh, impeach the evidence. All right, guys, I want to go a little bit towards uh, News Nation talking about the gag order. Brian Koberger, the presiding judge, is making changes to the gag order. You will remember it barred almost everyone from talking about the case before. Well, under this new gag order issued now, prosecution and defense attorneys can now speak on some matters related to the case. 
but they must still follow strict guidelines to preserve Koberger's right to a fair trial. Now, Koberger is accused of murdering four University of Idaho college students last year. He is facing first-degree murder and burglary charges in connection with their stabbing deaths. And the changes come as prosecutors announced that Koberger's DNA is a statistical match with the DNA that was found on the knife sheath that was left at the crime scene. Joining us now to get more perspective, Jesse Weber, News Nation legal contributor. Jesse, it's good to see you. Thanks for being here. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about that new DNA evidence indicating Koberger is a match for the DNA that was found on that sheath at the murder scene. The defense claiming that they are unaware of this. Does that strike you as strange? Because aren't they entitled to all of this information? Look, the defense is doing and saying what we expected them to do, right? They they are facing an uphill battle with this monumental development. And you couple that with the surveillance footage, you couple that with the cell phone evidence. And they are making a good point because they're saying that the prosecution is keeping information away from them. And at the end of the day, that's a legal argument. It'll be up to the judge to determine whether or not the prosecution has to turn over more materials to the defense. But we have to be clear about what they're doing here. They are actually previewing what their defense is going to be. A, well, how exactly did law enforcement get this material? Did they do anything improper? Did they really have probable cause? Because the best case scenario for them would be to make sure this evidence doesn't come into trial if law enforcement did something improper. And two, if it does come in, they're saying, well, how accurate is it? We have a right to understand the science behind this and understand how it was obtained. And we'll call our own experts and ask our own questions about how reliable genetic gene genealogy is, because that's the key right now to the prosecution's case. Okay, I appreciate that insight. And, and you know, we're uh, hearing that prosecutors are consulting the victim's families on the death penalty. And so far, Zana's mother favors life in prison. Meanwhile, Kaylee and Madison's family members, uh, they are seeking the death penalty. First of all, how common is it for the prosecution to get the family's input? And what does happen when the families are not in agreement? It's incredibly common. And look at the, really what the prosecutors have to do is say, they respect what the family wants, but it's really in the pursuit of justice and in their own public interest. And sometimes there's political reasons, they decide whether to go forward with the death penalty or not. Now in this kind of case, there are a number of different considerations. And you also have to imagine the death penalty phase, if he's ultimately convicted, that's almost like a separate trial. So there's more expense, there's more time. You also have to consider the family members, what that's going to do for them to see this, this aspect and they having to testify during that. Mm. But if you had a death penalty case, this feels like the one in Idaho. I mean, the, the death penalty is on the books for this kind of case. It's a horrific quadruple homicide. It's incredibly high profile, young victims, savage nature of it. So I wouldn't be surprised if prosecutors decide to move forward with the ultimate punishment. I do want to talk quickly about this modified gag order now. What kind yep. of information do you expect we will now be able to hear going forward? Not much. Basically, the attorneys in the case, like the prosecutors, the defense attorneys, the attorneys that are representing victims, they can talk a little bit about the case, but kind of bare bones, like the scheduling of the trial or what are the nature of the charges. They are allowed to make statements to correct the record if there's some sort of really bad misinformation coming out. But that's it. They can't talk about anything that's going to materially prejudice the case. They can't talk about the evidence. They can't talk about evidence that's not going to be in the case. They can't talk about a plea deal. So I don't really think at this point we're going to learn anything 
major from the attorneys, but it is for our news organizations a little bit of a win because they can speak a bit more than they were uh, previously not allowed to. Okay, I appreciate that. Um, we're looking at this new court filing from Koberger's attorney saying that there is no connection between his client and the four students who were murdered. How can he say that when he supposedly followed all three of the female victims on Instagram? It's a little bit of a play on words. Do they mean to say that he had no connection, he was a complete stranger? Because that may very well be the case. But to say he had no connection at this point, I wonder if that's a bit disingenuous, particularly since it's my understanding we don't know the complete evidence from the prosecution. For example, they found blood on different items in Koberger's apartment or house. And so we don't know who that tested positive for. Thank you for watching. So he said exactly what we were saying, that they have other evidence that we're, we're not privy to right now because the prosecution hasn't released this evidence. And when the trial, I think that Idaho law says all discovery material must be submitted prior to the start of the trial, which means October 2nd. If that, if that date is in stone, then by October 2nd, the prosecution must have all discovery materials within reason. There's certain things I don't think they can produce. Some of the phone records supposedly are so voluminous that they actually can't produce some of them. That just paper-wise, it would be, you know, like phone books of material, even more than that, and that they, they can't comply with certain of those orders regarding the cell phone information. So, but... You know, you understand, of course, discovery is the law and the, def the defense gets everything that the prosecution has. Mike. Yeah, Billy, uh, under generally, like, say, in New York, and I'm, I'll just say, for instance, Idaho is probably very similar to New York. Um, by around Labor Day, September 1st, you know, that sort of thing, um, the prosecution would have to really have finished giving all the evidence that they have and we're planning to use at the trial starting a month later. They'd have to give it to the defense. So the defense had that last, you know, three weeks, 30 days in order to um, come up with, you know, to, to examine any last minute stuff so they could figure out what they're going to do. Um, and then they could make, make a motion. If, a, if any sort of uh, pretrial motions haven't been made, they can make them then uh, and that sort of thing. It's just so they're not prejudiced. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, the problem for the prosecution is these, these, a uh, lot of these uh, records, as you say, they're paper records, they're voluminous. Uh, they're not in the state's possession. They're in this possession of like the FBI. And uh, so it's a problem for them because they may have so much data that it, for this case, they might not, have, they might have very grave difficulty handling it and handling it properly properly and giving it to defense giving them access to it and and even for the defense then to examine it uh in that time frame before we get to trial and that's a, that's a difficult thing in this sort of case prosecutor's office said that today mike at the hearing they said uh we're waiting on the bureaucracy of yeah. the fbi so again uh it's not that they don't want to turn it over and i believe that the uh, defense team even said we don't think that they are hiding it from us we just we're asking for it we want it to be turned over so again there's going to be some shuffling of, of mm -hmm. uh different uh 
you know, discovering material. And like Bill said, it's very voluminous. Uh, she said that previously in the, uh, one of the statements that she made, the, uh, the defense attorney, um, Ann Taylor. So again, uh, I think when she was talking about the, whether or not they're going to go forward with a alibi, uh, you know, they're going to present an alibi. She said that there's so much material, it's voluminous, that they needed more time to examine it. So again, uh, you know, th this is just going to be the back and forth. Uh, I saw a question in the chat. Uh, somebody said, uh, do we believe it's going to be October 2nd for the trial? Bill has said it. Mike has said it. I'm saying it. We don't think that the trial will actually start at that date. There's going to be a lot of different hearings and stuff. And uh, with the amount of evidence that has to be, uh, you know, gone over, we think it's probably going to start sometime next year. You know, folks, one of the things also when we speak about, and I know the, uh, the death penalty is a, a hot button topic. As many people are, well, probably more people are for it than against it. Maybe it's like 60, 40. I don't know what, what it is nationally. But many people are against the death penalty. And one of the arguments against it, of course, to go for the death penalty, it brings in so much more bureaucracy. In fact, if Brian Koberger is found guilty and then they have another almost like a, a second trial to go over whether he should get the death penalty, to actually punish someone with the death penalty can take 20 or 25 years. So it's almost like life without parole, true life without parole, because in our day and age, life without parole never seems to mean that anymore. We see cop killers being released that killed cops in the 60s and we're seeing other heinous criminals that sentenced to life without parole that are walking the streets right now. So I think teaching in colleges, teaching and yeah, teaching in colleges, they're, mm. they're getting rewarded, you know, so it, it is difficult to try a death penalty case. And look again, I will say it a million times. Brian Koberger deserves due process and he's innocent till proven guilty. hundred percent. Hey, Billy, can I just make a quick comment about the uh, death penalty in this case? Sure. Yeah, I, I think that the uh, prosecution in this case, they they don't want to have a trial. I think they want to ratchet up the tension in the, on the defense side. It's a great chess move. They're going to – and everybody expected it, but it's going to come to – you know, they're notifying the defense that, yes, we are going to uh, go for the death penalty. And, um, you know, it's going to be uh, in Idaho. It's by firing squad. So therefore, you know, uh, there's, and I imagine they would entertain a a plea deal in order to spare the families from having to go through the ordeal of hearing the evidence and things like that. But I think it's a great chess move. I'm glad they did it. And um, it's going to make it that much more difficult for Ann Taylor because, you know, she's got to then counsel Koberger by saying, look, if you if you if you if there's a plea on the table, we take it. You, your life will be spared, but you're not walking out of here and going home anytime soon. Um, and if you lose at trial, the best you're going to get is life behind bars without possibility of parole. And the worst you're going to get is you're going to be on death row for like 15, 20 years. And they're just going to take you one day and shoot you. And that's it. So um, there's really no good choices here. And so it ratchets it up. And I think the prosecution is doing it because ultimately they really probably don't want to try this case. They, I think they want to spare the families the, 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 the misery of having to sit there and watch this trial. So they want to get a plea. Mary Michael, thank you for the 999 super sticker. Ann Taylor says no evidence against BK. 
Next thing I hear, prosecution is filing for the death penalty. Also, no BK DNA. How about doggy DNA? AT's adding confusion going for Jose Baez 2.0 defense. I don't think doggy DNA would register on the DNA scale. I think it's much uh, different than human DNA, but good thought. Good thought there. Yeah, they could use that as a to, to create doubt. But, um, Mike, that's a great point that you, perhaps they are ratcheting up in, in an attempt to get a plea. And, you know, if if it looks like – look, I've seen killers and, and, and Phil's seen killers. And when you talk about them losing their life or that there was a death penalty, you got to see the fear in their eyes. So whoever says that it's not a deterrent is, is being political about it. Because when, when you say that, oh, you could get the death penalty, you got to see the person, the killer's eyes, and you got to see how they react. Absolutely. When and, you tell you them know, you're facing the needle, that usually gets their attention. Yeah, it does get their attention. So it, it, yeah. I don't agree when people say, so maybe they can use, like you say, Mike, maybe they can use this, the evidence and a strong case with garnering a plea. And that'll be also Ann Taylor's decision to perhaps convince her client, like, look, they're going for the death penalty. They got a very strong case. I I recommend you take the plea. Exactly. But how will that make the family, how will that make the community of Moscow, Idaho feel? You think they'll Bill, be acting as if he got off easy? Bill, let me make a point about the families. Now, we, they talked about how some of the family members might not want the death penalty. I knew a gentleman, he was an older gentleman. His son was gone, gunned down in a bar fight. It was a fight. That, uh, the, the guy who was killed was much bigger. Guy went home, got a gun, came back, shot him, and killed him. Years later, somebody asked uh, my friend, uh, the gentleman, uh, would you like to have, you know, would you like to kill the guy that killed your son? And he turned dead in his face and said, uh, what am I going to do, make another mother cry? So I guess he felt that he, he saw his own family. He felt the sorrow of losing his son. And the guy did get arrested, did go to jail. And his response was exactly what I said. Uh, so I guess there are certain people or family members that might feel that way. However, I think that the, uh, like it was pointed out by the reporter in the last clip that you played, uh, it's up to the criminal justice system, up to the prosecutors. They stated that they felt that it was a, a heightened standard based on the death penalty. And they also talked about aggravating factors. So all of that put together, listen, if there's uh, any case that I've seen recently, this is it that calls for the death penalty. Absolutely. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Now, Joe is a terrific criminal defense attorney. He's a big supporter of police off the cuff. He's also a 15-year member of the NYPD, retired. Joe is also a boxer. So if you need uh, a criminal defense attorney, if you're having some legal issues, Joe Murray might be able to just deliver that knockout punch. You could get Joe on his website, jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646 838 1702, or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. I have Joe's phone number and my phone uh, my phone just in case. I think everybody should put it in theirs if you're in the New York area. You know, folks, one of the things that, uh, you know, we listen to uh, a lot of different people talking about this case, the mainstream media, uh, a lot of content creators, and any case, any criminal case of murder, robbery any you could create doubt of course you can create doubt but the evidence is supposed to be you know the evidence that a reasonable person will interpret the evidence in a certain way so 
reason comes into play and a judge in a trial like this will define to the jury what the rules of evidence are and what a reasonable person is and the conduct and the open mind that they expect the jury to have. Mike. Yeah, Billy, you know, the judge, is, the judge will always tell people, you know, like you say, in essence, you know, you're listening, the jury's there, they're listening to two different sides. They're hearing uh, great, you know, great uh, arguments on both sides to a, to a particular point of view, the prosecution or defense. And, and, you know, what they have to do is apply, as they would say, that common sense, reasonable standard. You don't, oh, you don't have to twist logic into a pretzel and make it stand on its head in order to try to figure out a way that the prosecution's case is absolutely airtight in every single way and they did everything perfectly or the defense is completely innocent. No, just use your common sense. And I think that's that when judges give those sort of instructions, you know, the reasonable person instructions, that's excellent. We saw it in the Murdoch case. And hopefully we'll see it here. Mike, when we when they talk about um, challenging the grand jury indictment, is that is that just a Hail Mary pass or is that is is there any truth behind that, you think? Billy, I think it's a Hail Mary pass because, you know, we, we've been around the block you know, between the three of us. We've got like 70 years of law enforcement experience. You know, the probable cause standard. Mike, Mike, we're not 70 years old. Keep that. Make that clear. We have over 70 years of law That's all three of us right. put together. Right. So let's do the math. But we're not 70 years old, folks. Right. Are you sensitive about that? Okay. Yeah, I'm sensitive as I get older to that. Yes. He's closing in on 70. That's, That's right. That's sensitive. right. But, you know, that probable cause standard is not that high. And so, therefore... Right. The, it doesn't take a lot of evidence to convince someone that there's probable cause. Because remember, by the time it goes to grand jury and they're looking at probable cause, you've got a, a police officer that believes he's got probable cause. In this case, you got a detective and then you had a judge sign off on an arrest warrant. So the, a cop and a judge also already believed that there was probable cause. It goes and to the grand prosecutor's jury. office. Yeah, it goes to. The, thank you. Right. It goes to the prosecutor's office, too, before it then goes to a grand jury. So everybody who has seen it, this case up till now, all believe there's probable cause. We're not getting to proof beyond a reasonable doubt yet. That will occur. But as of right now, yes, the, the standard is meant to be uh, that probable cause standard. Does a case have merit? If the case doesn't have merit, there's no probable cause, you dismiss it. But if the case has probable cause, we move it down the, uh, the line to, uh, towards uh, trial. And so, therefore, it's a Hail Mary pass. Absolutely. That's and, Mike, one quick point, Mike. Uh, the district attorney's office in every case that I ever put forward, is, especially in homicide cases, yeah. they're very skeptical of witnesses. They look over everything. Yeah. They examine everything before they'll move forward with a grand jury. In other words, they'll take it to the next level. So, again, uh, Brooklyn, uh, all five boroughs, actually, uh, district attorney's office has to authorize the arrest for a homicide. It's the only thing that you can't arrest on your own, you have to get authorization to make a homicide arrest in the NYPD. So again, they're right in there. They're on top of it. They're looking at everything. They're vetting witnesses. They're looking at evidence. And then they proceed with everything. So uh, they, they're they very confident in this case, I'm sure. You know, one of the things also that all you folks have to realize is it's not just uh, uh, District Attorney uh, of, uh, what's his name? Um, excuse me, William Thompson that's prosecuting this case. It's the State Attorney General's Office that put two of their best 
prosecutors on this case. So even though William Thompson is an experienced district attorney, he's not experienced in, in prosecuting murders. So what the state did was delivered two uh, state attorney generals to him to help him out with this case and all of the resources that the state attorney general has. And again, uh, the FBI is involved in this case too. So their resources, and what I mean by resources is money because you need money to investigate and properly uh, prosecute this case. As so, And so does the defense. The defense needs money. They need private investigators. They need expert witnesses. So a case like this is going to cost a fortune on both sides of the fence. Let me play a little of this on today's motions. We're standing in this ex exact spot a little over a month ago for Brian Koberger's arraignment, which, as we reported, came shortly after he was secretly indicted by a grand jury on four counts of murder and one count of burglary. In May, Koberger's defense attorneys filed a motion asking for all the material and records from the grand jury proceedings. They want it all under a protective order so only people involved in the case can review it. But the defense and the prosecution cannot agree about what should be released. The state believes Koberger is only entitled to an audio recording and transcript of the grand jury proceedings. So, Latah County District Court Judge John Judge will hear their arguments on that later this afternoon. He'll also hear why Koberger's attorneys want to pause further legal proceedings. In documents filed a couple weeks ago, they said they plan to fight how the grand jury was chosen and fight the indictment in general. His defense attorneys also say they asked prosecutors for discovery or information. And while Lake Tahoe County prosecutors provided a lot, there's certain information they haven't handed over because they say they don't have it or it doesn't exist or they don't think they should have to provide it. So the judge will hear arguments over Koberger's motions to compel discovery today as well. Court documents show his team wants the state to give them information like all tips sent into law enforcement about the case, investigative reports and findings from cell phone analysis, and a video the FBI used to identify the white Hyundai Elantra as the suspect's car. Koberger's attorneys also want information on the DNA profiles created during the investigation and all reports around law enforcement's genetic genealogy investigation. But prosecutors don't want to give the defense information about the genetic genealogy done to build the family tree that led to Koberger. They even asked the judge to issue a protective order for that info. Prosecutors say they're not relying on that for their case. Rather, they're relying on DNA from a cheek swab from Koberger matching the DNA on the knife sheath found on the bed next to Maddie and Kaylee's bodies. In new court filings, Koberger's attorneys accuse the state of trying to hide its entire case. They say it's unclear what police first relied on in focusing their investigation on him, the Elantra or genetic genealogy. Also of note in those documents, his attorneys say there is no DNA evidence from the victims in Koberger's apartment, office, home or car. Attorneys from both sides will argue all those issues here at the Latah County Courthouse at 1.30 this afternoon. I imagine those hearings will last several hours. We will, of course, bring you all the highlights both on air and online on KTVB.com. There actually wasn't a, a lot of, uh, they didn't spend a lot of time today on these hearings. I believe it was only about an hour, an hour and a half long. And it didn't seem that they, they got to all of the topics that they intended on covering. I don't think the, the judge said he was going to take them one at a time. It seemed like JJ, thank you for the nine ninety nine super sticker. Very much appreciated. All the support of you guys is police off the cuff, real crime stories. We appreciate all you guys in our chat. I don't thank take you. anything for granted here. 
we're growing the channel, but one brick at a time, as they say, you know. <laughs> and that's why I bring on these two superstars, Professor Mike Geary and straight out of Brooklyn detective, retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. So I think, you know, we sort of touched on a lot of topics uh, today, but I think it's frustrating for everyone, people that are observing this case, people that are attorneys, people that are in law enforcement. What's the next move? Where is it going next? And, you know, there's the people that feel that uh, Brian Koberger is innocent and there's the folks that believe that he's guilty and, and they want to get, you know, get on with this trial. But the wheels of justice never spin quickly. And uh, we know that, right, Mike? Yeah, Billy, it's, it takes a lot of patience and a lot of fortitude and, a lot, you know, people not uh, listening to wild rumors, you know, uh, because we, we can tell, we can see, we've experienced it before with what happened early on in the investigation with people, wild rumors about, you know, who, who might've done this, the bartender, the ex-boyfriend, the, uh, the pizza delivery guy, the, uh, the, the college professor, all kinds of crazy stuff. People, you know, people just got to take it easy, uh, you know, have patience and don't give in to these urges to start turning logic and common sense on its head. Absolutely. Phil, your thoughts? Well, I think the uh, the whole case is now going through the uh, the trials and tribulations of the hearings. They're gonna, you know, the defense is gonna look for small victories, perhaps uh, on that uh, training. Perhaps they're gonna say, well, this uh, particular investigator didn't have interview and interrogation training, or uh, something of that nature. Uh, you know, evidence collection, whatever it is that they're going to be focusing on. Judge is going to make some rulings. So if they get a little small victory here and a small victory there, those are the things that they'll be ready. They'll, they'll, they'll mount their defense in court and hope to get, uh, you know, uh, one or two of the jurors to be on their side to create a doubt. Uh, I don't see that. Uh, it looks like it's a pretty solid case to me. As long as when the defense puts something forward uh, that the prosecution can now... Uh, you know, reiterate, well, we believe this based on that evidence or the fact, I'll just bring up the, what we talked about before, how DNA evidence was uh, recovered of unknown males inside of the home. Uh, I think a point could be made that it would be totally, totally unusual if DNA evidence of other people wasn't found in that location. So they're talking about two males from inside the location, unknown DNA males inside the location, and that glove that was found a week later unknown male on that DNA. Uh, again, they're going to try and make the inference that's the real killer. It's not my client, Brian Kohlberger. However, you're going to have to look at all of this other evidence that puts Brian Kohlberger at the scene 11 times in the past, what we call doing a recon, the cell phone evidence, the video evidence, the DNA evidence, all the different things. Uh, DM seeing uh, a person inside with bushy eyebrows and a mask that can describe a figure, height and weight maybe. So all of those things are going to be all the circumstantial part of it. There'll be the real evidence DNA, and we don't know what other evidence that they're holding back on that will be presented at trial. So uh, the defense you know, has Phil, to do their job. Phil, you mentioned something, and us uh, coppers, you know, us former cops, to us it says so much, and the recon of the location. Exactly. To, to former police officers, that says so much. And Late at night or just, early in the morning, too. That's another thing. The time right, factor and comes not into just, it. And not just the recon, but the fact that he went back to the scene of the crime. At 9 o'clock in the at morning. At 9 o'clock in the morning. That is huge. If anyone that ever worked homicide, that is, believe it or not, that is one of the attributes 
of a serial killer and other murderers that go back. They're curious to see their handiwork. Who's at the scene that they just did this horrific act. Arsonists do it all the time. If you look at an arsonist that they always return to the scene to to see the police response. That's they get the, they get the excitement, the adrenaline flowing. He wanted to see what was going on. He was probably very surprised that there was no activity at all when he went back at nine o'clock in the morning. But Again, uh, you're pointing out some great points there, Billy. Well, you know, there's a lot of people that aren't in this business that maybe just follow true crime or real crime. They see things like that. Oh, what does that mean? Well, it actually means a lot, you know. And the other thing that's going to happen on this case, and there's going to be both sides are going to hire behavioral analysts. Guaranteed. Guaranteed behavioral analysts, um, forensic psychologists like Dr. Joni Johnson, in fact, we got to have her come on again. She's fantastic. But the defense will also, to thwart what undoubtedly the prosecution, and maybe the defense will come up with a behavioral analyst first, and the prosecution will have to get an expert to argue the defense. So we're going to see all of these experts, and each one, each side has to be prepared for the defense, the best defense is a good offense, as they say, right? And that's what's going to happen in this case. You know, I just want to play a little of this. This is a California prosecutor named Matt Murphy. And about a month ago, he made these comments. And, and I, I, it was the only person I saw on TV that thought that the evidence in this case is overwhelming. We know that some of the families do want, the victims' families do want the death penalty. These crimes were heinous, but, yeah, and they don't blame that. I don't blame them. But how does a prosecutor make this decision? So a prosecutor under these circumstances will weigh the aggravating versus mitigating circumstances. It's essentially um, the same job that a jury will be asked to do. And this case is so overwhelmingly awful, for lack of a better term. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure within the DA's office to actually seek the death penalty on that. And the evidence seems to be very strong. I mean, it's not circumstantial. There's hard, there's DNA evidence, there's cell phone evidence, there's... And there's a lot of evidence here. The evidence against Brian Koberger is overwhelming, and that actually is a factor in that decision. Essentially, I just wanted everyone to hear that. Because this is not this is not some talking head. This is not some content creator. This is not some defense attorney. This is a prosecutor from California who did murders for 17 or 18 years. And to hear that come out of his mouth. I think you got to take a lot of credence in that. Folks, we're, uh, guys, we've been on the air for an hour and 18 minutes. I'm going to give everyone their final thoughts. I thought this was uh, a pretty damn informative show tonight, if I must say myself. Uh, Phil, I'm going to go to you first. I'm going to let uh, Mike Geary have the last words. Phil, your final words. My final words are I'm looking forward to examining all the different things that are going to take place with regard to this trial, the hearings, and the eventual trial Uh, I think we are doing a service by explaining some of the stuff that's going on. We do have our opinions. They're not based on just, you know, I woke up this morning and I'm going to make a comment on, uh, you know, a homicide investigation or a trial or or any of the stuff that's going on in this case. We're doing it based on, as Mike said earlier, 70 years experience. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the names. Zana Canodal, Kaylee Gonzalez, Madison Mogan, and Ethan Chapin. May God bless their souls and may their families get justice and may they rest in peace. Mike, over to you. 
Yeah, just uh, for everybody, just to, yeah, just listen to people with experience when they discuss this case and not listening to listen to the, the people, uh, what was it, the drunk turkey guy who was saying stuff. Uh, don't do that sort of stuff. Just, you know, take it easy and just actually get the information that's the most accurate. Even though we're police officers and retired police officers, and we're, we tend to side mostly with the prosecution, but not in 100% of the case not cases, but... Uh, Take, you know, just go with uh, the experience and that'll lead you generally to the right answer all the time. That's right. We will lead you to the promised land. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Father Geary will. Anyway, folks, thank you so much for tuning in tonight. I really enjoyed tonight's show and I'm, I'm part of it. And I'm glad that you were with us to uh, to go through all the, the new sort of the, some new stuff and some stuff that we've been talking about almost the whole time. Have a great night, everyone, and God bless. Stay safe, everyone. Good night. One episode.